Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi, I'm Dimitar and you're listening to your favourite Brussels Bubble podcast where we try to answer all those questions which keep you up at night. Is there actually personal privacy in Europe? Are the Chinese taking over the internet? Is there an I in AI? This is Brussels Bytes. In today's recording, we would like to take your mind off all those very, very important questions going on. Top jobs, future of the European Commission, future of Europe, and bring you back to our own digital reality. I'm really happy to be joined today by uh, Dr. Rosalind Leighton, uh, who is a visiting research, researcher at Obok University, Center for Communication, Media and Information Technologies. We're going to be talking with Rosalind on 5G, infrastructure and future of communications in Europe. Rosalind uh, uses empirical methods. She assesses regulation and policies for digitally connected domains such as mobile wireless, telecom, cable, internet, online advertising, financial technology, and much more. Dr. Layton also served on the 2016-2017 Federal Communications Commission Presidential Transition Team. Rosalind has a PhD in Business Economics from Obok University and an MBA from the Rotterdam School of Management. Rosalind, it's a pleasure to have you. So great to be with you. Thank you. Um, so, in our previous conversation, we, we raised a number of very interesting topics. But I would just like to point out to our listeners that a couple of years ago, you wrote a very interesting paper for the Martin Center about telecoms. So, what made you write the paper? What were the key highlights? And what's happening in Europe when we talk about telecoms and 5G? So it's such a pleasure to be here at the Martin Center, and I'm so grateful that I had the chance to work with you before and I produced a paper with you. What I regret, however, is what I talked about in my paper has come to pass. Mm. Um, the, the paper was actually about the gap, 100 billion euros, between the um, European Commission goals for connectivity and the actual level of investment. So what I describe in that paper is the problem where Europe used to lead the world in telecommunications investment and innovation, um, had one-third of the world's telecom investment, six makers of phones, had the three, uh, the, the GSM standard, and but that went away. And in today, Europe has maybe less than 20% of the world's telecommunications investment. Why? Why did we lose Nokia? Well, I mean, in the big picture, what I, my research looks at is that the basically the command and control regulation that's been put on the telecom industry has had a damaging effect on investment and innovation in telecommunications technology. So that the money that used to be centered in Europe to invest in new technologies, to invest in the next generation of infrastructure, we're talking about 5G today, that capital has gone away. It's gone to the United States, gone to South Korea, to China, and so on. So investors, if you overregulate your investment, they will find some, some other place to put their money. And I've always been concerned about this. I have three Danish-American children, and I want them to grow up in a, in a Europe that's flourishing, that is a, a place where people want to be for the new technologies, for a high quality of life. And so I've been concerned about this for a long time. 
But many Europeans are happy with their 4G services. Everybody is connected. We have our roaming regulations. Now data is flowing throughout the continent. And Europeans are naturally happy about it. Sure. Why well, are you concerned? So, you know, we at for the moment, people enjoy their internet. But that's what they just experienced today. When people had 2G, they didn't realize they needed 3G. When you had a basic feature phone, did, did you really miss a smartphone? You didn't know you needed the mm. smartphone until it was invented and someone brought it to you. I mean, yes, I remember before we used uh, email, we had a happy life, but I wouldn't go back to those kind of days now that what I know today. So what we are, let's, we should talk about 5G or just let me make a, 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 make a, a suggestion of what that means. Mm. Uh, yes. 4G has largely been about consumer applications on the internet using your smartphone. That's primarily what we use 4G for. But 5G is really about... Um, intelligent networks, the Internet of Things. You, what 5G is is lightning fast speeds through the air to do uh, remote surgery, autonomous vehicles, smart grid technology. It's about industrial applications. Now, in the short run in the United States, a lot of 5G is being rolled out because people are what are called cord cutters. They're cutting their wireline subscription, whether it's a fiber network or cable network. They're canceling that in favor of getting a 5G subscription because they can get their content through the air. And that is driving competition in the United States. You don't need a fiber optic cable to get this connection, no, correct? No, that's. I mean, there is in the backhaul. So, for example, if you to the base station or to the tower, there will be a fiber connection to that. Mm. But you don't need it to your home. And so part of what I'm advocating in my policies and my research is I want what's called facilities-based competition. I want to have different kinds of infrastructures competing. The satellite industry is competing with the terrestrial networks. The uh, wireline networks are competing with the wireless networks. So we have all of these kinds of net different networks competing. And that has been the essential story about the U.S. versus the EU. Mm. Why did the U.S. start to dominate and win? Is because we allowed facilities-based competition. We allowed consolidation and we allowed profitability in the telecoms industry. And that is what drives the investment. The investors want to get a return. And um, consumers, so for example, just give you an ex you asked before, if you know Henry Ford who's had the car, if he said, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they'd say a faster horse. Okay? Mm. So, you know, consumers aren't always going to predict, you know, they, they're, they're happy with things. They have more content than they know what to do with. The devices are great. But we always want society to go forward. And there's a lot of areas where we can save money, where we can do things better if we have a next level of technology. But, but doesn't the, the specific model of regulation in the U.S. also reinforce uh, monopolies in, the, in these sectors? No, no, because you have what matters is facilities-based competition. Mm. If you look at the deployment of the different broadband technologies, the U.S. has always had more competition because we had cable infrastructure to almost every home. We had, so you have, a, I mean, in the Netherlands is a great example. You have DSL and you have um, cable, but you have many wireless. In the United States, that kind of model was considered superior to the European model, which is one state-owned network mm -hmm. where you resell the access. So that's fine if you're in a static world and all you care about is having one network with one technology. What drives competition is not the number of players, it's the level of technology. So you only need, in theory, you only need two companies to make competition. If you have 3G and 4G, you will get dynamic competition because the standards will keep evolving. The other part is if you don't upgrade your network, it will expire like a gallon of milk. 
mm. or liter of milk, excuse me, it will expire. So you have to um, you, you have to upgrade the the technologies. And in fact, we have um, you know there's been a lot of European investment in the United States, uh, and and that's part of how they've been able to maintain some amount of profitability is that they have gotten returns from their U.S. investments. So how is the 5G deployment? going right now in, so, in the U.S.? What's the timeline? Yeah, it's in pockets at this point because mm. the um, 5G is also an evolution in the network ar ar architecture. So, for example, in the past where we had maybe a large tower or a mobile mass delivering 4G, in many cases 5G is using small cell technology, which is deployed in cities. And so you have um, uh, in various uh, states, various cities have made um, a 5G uh, framework so that they can get up and running. And in fact, the FCC, they have a national 5G fast plan. So um, we, we fast track the rollout, meaning that the, you can only charge X amount for the rent if you're putting up a mast on a building or a piece of land. And it speeds the review, the environmental historical review. It has to go quickly. Uh, so, so you will see things going on in pockets, but because they're industrial applications, for example, you can 5G is coming up in rural areas where you may have precision agriculture. It may be an energy, um, in different energy companies. Mm. They are very interested in these technologies because you can cover um, uh, large areas. So. Um, you can connect your home, yeah, your right. home, so home it's, with of the course, devices. Right. So presently, um, you know, Sacramento, California is one of the areas. You have it in, in Texas with AT&T, um, a number of other. So it, it's going in. It's not like a light switch and everything changes at once. It's an evolution. And technically, 5G is rolling out of 4G. So it's a bit like hot and cold water. Once you combine them, you can't separate them. Mm. So they're evolving together. Uh, and but it's not going to happen overnight. No, it's not overnight. No, because I remember and in 2010 when 4G was rolled out in Europe, it took at least a couple of years before people can actually right. become accustomed to it. To actually, we have to have the, the apps, the device, right. and so on. Right. So. Yeah, and we also know if you are familiar with the bell curve of uh, you know innovation and adoption. You know, mm. people you have early adopters and then late adopters, and then there's also the shark fin of adoption where really things are going fast at once and then drop off. But in this case, 5G is also going to be you have industrial applications playing a role that you didn't have in the past. And in the U.S., just so you know, mm -hmm. just to give a sense there. Maybe 30% of the American economy really uses information technology to be productive. We're interested in the other 70%, which is the transportation sector, highly inefficient, the health sector, highly inefficient. Um, so many other areas of the U.S. economy which don't use information as well as they could, that can have more productivity. And in agriculture, I'm sure, right? So yeah. many places. And that, I mean, what does that say about EU? We also, one of the challenges for European Union is the small and medium-sized businesses don't grow. They don't invest in, you know, they, they don't make these big investments in information technology uh, because they, they're mainly selling to their own, you know, with their, the people who speak their language in their own country. They're not doing cross-border. This has been the long goal of the digital single market effort was to get small and medium-sized businesses to digitize and sell across the EU. It, this is a great segue to the EU because I, I think when we talk about 5G, the average European has heard of 5G maybe in two instances in his or her life. In 2018, I remember the first time I heard actually about 5G in, in operation was during the South Korea Winter Olympics, uh, where the Koreans were showing off their amazing 5G technology. And um, I, would, I would say that the second time the European actually heard about 5G was when we started reading about this scandal with Huawei, with China, with security. So what's happening and why aren't we rolling out 5G in Europe faster? And why is there such a controversy when we talk about Huawei? 
Yeah. So it's a great question. So as, I, we, as we already discussed here, we've got a challenge in the European Union with the, with the gap between the investment that's needed. And, mm. uh, 100 billion, you said. Right. So, yeah. right. So, so because of the um, you know the the inability to earn return on their investment, the the telecoms look for other investments. So, what has how did Huawei even get involved in the European Union? Well, for one thing, they use cut rate pricing, and they have financing from Chinese banks that their competitors don't. So they're competing with Nokia and Ericsson, and they can undercut them on the price. So that's really how they got a foothold. Now, interestingly, in the United States, we've never had Huawei in the networks. Going back to 2005, the uh, carriers in the U.S., they realized it was not worth it. It was too high of a risk. And um, we also knew from a national securities perspective, it was not a good idea to work with a company that is delivering the surveillance state in China. Mm. So let's let's not go there. Uh, But in any case, uh, in Europe, but we're now seeing... You know, fine, there's now that the U.S. has an official policy to restrict it in networks. But the important part is that what's really driving this is not the government. It's the companies themselves. The companies who are using the networks, whether they're pharmaceutical company or aerospace or uh, consumer products or whatever, they don't want to use a network that's being run by the Chinese. They don't want their data on a Chinese network that could have a backdoor where the Chinese government could surveil or steal their intellectual property. So it's actually those kind of firms who are driving this change. And I would say, you know, for myself, other people, it's for us, it is a, it's a human rights uh, democracy issue. You should not be doing business with the company that is enabling the surveillance state. I mean, this, this, the, the way when you talk about in China with the various uh, ways that they surveil the people, they're using Huawei technology to do it. Mm-hmm. Also, the closed circuit TV cameras, those, all those are getting ripped out in the United States as well. But Huawei um, has uh, has never doesn't even really have a market in the U.S. So the fact that there's now a policy about them in the United States, it's not a big deal because we never really bought a lot of Huawei phones or networks. It was extremely small and a small few companies, and it's it's, it's not hard to get rid of those. But Huawei is quite popular in Europe. Absolutely. If you look at the numbers in 2018, right. if I'm not mistaken, the only brand which went up in terms of phone sales was Huawei. Right. But Europeans love their Huawei phones. Right. But They're the cheap. problem is because when you want to have low prices above all, you have to cut corners. Mm. And in the U.S., at least because of the ability to have a consolidation and to have profit, they could afford to to choose the safe option. And the companies were able to think long-term because security is worth paying for. When you look at the, the, what the cost that you pay in your national security, in your personal safety, in your intellectual property, mm-hmm. there's no price that's worth it to work with Huawei. Um, a very important clarification, because many people will say, okay, it, there is such a high risk in dealing with Huawei. Why don't we vet the hardware technology which is being put in place? Yep. Is the risks are the risks about hardware or software? Right. So this is an important point. Uh, the other issue with um, with five G technologies, it's not just about hardware. Yep. It is software, and a lot of upgrades can be made through software. Mm. So one of the problems is while we could guarantee that software update number one mm-hmm. is clean and there's no you know surveillance or backdoor in it, there's no guarantee about software update two, and when you're talking about 5G network, it will be seamlessly updated. It's going to be constantly evolving and changing and being more intelligent. So that's where the concerns are. There's one other important point that I want to make, which I think people need to understand, is what is it that makes 5G 5G? And what we need to understand is there's standards essential patents, what's called SEP. There's essential patents, and then there's what's called implementation patents. 
Qualcomm, which is a U.S. company, makes the standard essential patents for 5G. So there's no 5G phone in the world that does not have the Qualcomm chip in it. Mm -hmm. you, you can't knock it off. You can't make it up. You have to have that chip in order for it to do the 5G stuff. So why it's not a big deal for the U.S. to do this is the 5G technology is already American. And so what? So enable when they're working, U.S. is primarily using Nokia Ericsson um, uh, uh, equipment, working with the 5 They have also some 5G patents. China makes a lot of 5G implementation patents, but one Qualcomm patent is worth 1,000 Chinese patents, to put it that way. I mean, in fact, Huawei is making more patents than any company. More power, that's, you know, it's amazing what they're doing, but they're not the standard essential patents. So that's why the particular policy now the Trump administration has taken, um, it has, it, it's almost a, de it's a death spiral for Huawei because if they can't get the Qualcomm chip mm -hmm. for their phone, they cannot sell a 5G phone anywhere. So, so that's that's why their phone orders are, are are dying. They're scrambling themselves to find workarounds now. And then they said, well, they'll go on to 6G and whatever. But we're at a point now where we still have to get the companies, the industrial applications up on 5G. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of time before we get to 5G and then even longer for 6G. But this is the crucial point, which I want people to take away, is that you you need to be able to own and make the essential patents yourself. And we used to be making that in European in Europe. Mm. The European universities and my university, Alborg, was also doing this essential work in radio technology. That money, a lot of it was coming from the telecom industry. We had tens of thousands of people working in that. And because of the regulatory, the command and control regulation, we have reduced and re removed a lot of that ecosystem where that essential work was, was emerging. Great. But how about the European response to, to the Huawei saga? Because it, it, it seems to me that not all the member states are, at least officially, are, are not fully on board with, let's yeah. say, what you say. Yeah. And they, they didn't condemn Huawei outright. Yeah. And we have the European Commission recommendation from a couple of months ago, uh, the Commission basically saying, Okay, guys, let's get our act together. Let's do national security impact assessments, and let's maybe figure out a supranational European response to this. Yeah. So, you know, I got off the plane this morning from Copenhagen. I arrived here in Brussels, and the first thing I saw when I got off the plane was a giant digital billboard that said, vote smarter, vote 5G, Huawei. And it was <laughs> okay. like European politicians on the picture. I don't think any European company would ever mm. make such an advertisement. But Huawei is doing the biggest propaganda campaign I've ever seen. They're working with PR firms across the EU. Mm. They Part of their strategy, how did they get involved? They hire the former heads of police, the former chiefs of security. They hire former government officials in the various member states as their uh, managing director. So they actually get the... the trusted European people to sell their stuff, to, to get the permit, to get going. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's unconscionable to me how you, could, how you could do that. But this is also the problem with a lot of the policy in EU. It has crippled the EU economically. So what, what, it's not a surprise that they run into the arms of the Chinese if you have made a policy that reduces your jobs or reduces your economic competitiveness or reduces your profitability. Of course the Chinese look popular. They're coming with lots of money, going to the PR firms left and right. And, you know, and, and, but what I would say is we have the smart people here in Europe. We've done this in the past. We should be able to pull it together and do it. By the way, this touches upon an, another issue, um, the issue of strategic investment coming from, uh, from China, because we, we've seen the last couple of years 
uh, Chinese m money pouring in, let's say, Greece's biggest port or Portuguese strategic infrastructure for energy. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have an actual European mechanism, strong mechanism for screening this investment. So do you think this is one of the ways to go in the future? That's an interesting, well, I haven't looked at that issue. I mean, mm. the U.S. does have, a, there's a, an organization called CFIUS. It's part of the Department of Treasury where they actually, um, they, they will review the foreign investments for national security concerns. Uh, what I would say is, I think people in Europe are waking up to this. What I would like Europeans to do is to sort of look at the record. We have now 15 to 20 years of innovation policy in Europe. Maybe it's worked in some sectors, but... It certainly has not in telecoms. The policy about mergers, which was not allowing um, in-country consolidation, Rome like at home, net neutrality, EU telecom code, these policies may be great for winning consumers and voters, but they have not supported new European technologies. They have not supported new European startups. So that's where my concern is, and I hope that the Europeans are starting to wake up to that because security, safety, innovation, these things are also important. Just in addition to having stuff that's free or cheap or low price. But, okay, the, the big question about European startups, is it about over-regulation or is it about the fragmentation of the single market and the fact that we, we still live in national silos and maybe European regulation is getting us there, no? Well, but I guess what I'd say is I don't think the EU policymakers actually understand how it works because even those of us who work in Strong the, words. It, <laughs> I, because it, what's the metric they're using? When I read the reports from Barrick on the net neutrality policy, they said, well, we know it's working because there are clusters, there, there are IT clusters in the EU. Mm. The IT clusters precede the net neutrality policy by a, at least a decade. So that, if that's their justification, that's not a justification, that's not empirical that the net neutrality policy is helping the clusters. Mm. And I know from my own PhD, I studied the, um, the net neutrality policy in Denmark, which was self-regulation. It was a bottom-up, multi-stakeholder model versus what was done in Holland. Over the same period, for five years, Holland had command and control. Denmark exceeded uh, Netherlands by one-third in terms of making their own apps within Denmark and making apps used globally. So many apps today, subway surfers, um, a number of food delivery services, many things are, were actually developed in Denmark, used globally. I can't name one um, consumer mobile app made in the Netherlands that's used globally. Mm. So the, it's not only that, but the other part is that the Danish operators had the freedom to do price flexibility. They were the first in d uh, offering free data. They also offered um, uh, pre uh, sorry postpaid. Uh, uh, they were they were doing more different ways with this bundling data with the smartphone. Versus if you couldn't do that in the Netherlands because you get have to get uh, permission from the regulator before you do a new price strategy. Versus in they have commercial freedom in Denmark, so they would just, different mobile operators would try different things to get people to adopt a smartphone. So they had a more forward-looking way to do things uh, in, in Denmark because you got people onto the smartphone more quickly um, than they did in Holland. Now, of course, Holland is a very innovative country. Um, again, both of them are speeding, but... The incremental improvement meant a lot. So the top app in Denmark gets more revenue and downloads than the top 20 in in, in, uh, in Netherlands, just to put that in perspective. So when you're dealing with internet companies, you have a power law, mm. you know, because you, you do have, uh, you can get, if you have one global app, gets you more traffic and, and revenue in the door than your 20 apps that are just running on your own little country in Europe. 
is 5G potentially going to break the existing model when we talk about internet and subscriptions in Europe? Because the um, opportunities provided by 5G in terms of content, in terms of services, is immense. Is this going to break the current model of pay for specific service and you get open access to everything? Or will we be able to get different premium services or access to different content? It, What's your take on that? Well, so what you use the word break. What I would say is the the new models just won't take hold because operators, okay. if they're not allowed to do it, they they just they mm. don't even try. I mean, and that's what I find is the saddest part, um, is that you know the, a lot of the U.S. notion about trying things is a permissionless innovation. You get to try it. You get to mm. try, and it fails, and you fail quickly, and then you move on. You figure out, you know, does it work? It doesn't work. What about the damage which <laughs> which which happened over time? I mean. Move fast and break things. Yes, I know. Yeah, Sorry about yeah. that. Maybe you'll edit that, that piece out. Let, let me say that one again. The difference of a permissionless innovation for different kinds of pricing arrangements in the marketplace, mm. okay? Because the European approach is the government knows best. They are, they're trying to tell me what is plan is best for me rather than me deciding myself, mm -hmm. okay? Rome like at home, these other kinds of command and control, heavy-handed policies. They're what the government wants. It's what somebody sitting in Brussels wants. They actually make the service for the poorest person more expensive. Okay, In order to provide it for the person jet-setting around Europe who doesn't want to have a high mobile bill, that's great for them, but for somebody who just wants a low-priced product, they don't get that. Right. So, so it's this is... You know, anyone who studies economics, you're going to pay one way or another. And what net neutrality policy basically says is we're not going to let the Silicon Valley companies, which deliver all the traffic, they could pay for the traffic. We could make it free for the end consumers. But we say, no, end consumers must pay 100 percent. Silicon Valley pays zero. Like, I don't know in what world that should be working, but that's what any kind, that's how the price control works. You're saying one party's paying zero, another party's paying 100%. Mm. In a free market, there is supply and demand, and we have multiple arrangements. It could be 50-50, it could be 60-40, it could be 199. There's a number of arrangements. But essentially, that's why that kind of policy is it limits, because who can afford to pay 100%? You have fewer adopters, you're going to try fewer things. Give you a great example. Tesla, very popular uh, car company, they, they do a very non-neutral model. They prepay the data in their cars. So when mm -hmm. you buy a Tesla, there's already a chip inside the car that will deliver your Spotify and all your other internet stuff, but they're prepaying the data for you, right? If you look at the 5G and all the different kinds of apps and devices that we want to do, why wouldn't we allow the different players in the marketplace to subsidize our connection so we don't have to pay it as consumers? You need to have different parties participating in order to get innovation and new things in the marketplace. And essentially what net neutrality says is consumers must pay 100%. Uh -huh. And if the telecoms get involved, it's somehow wrong or whatever. You just limit the kinds of capabilities that are there. Now, that doesn't mean there's no regulation. You can still have um, antitrust. You can still have a telecom regulator. They can review the marketplace for bad activity if it occurs. But if you adopt a model at the beginning that says we're not going to allow whole categories of things, you just have less innovation. And so what I would tell you in the United States was two years after the net neutrality rules have been um, rolled back, we have never had more startups than today. In last, in 2017 to 2018, 34,000 new startups after the net neutrality rules were removed.
Sure, but 20 federal uh, state governments are going against this, and there's still huge controversy when we talk about yeah. the whole 3 to 2 uh, FTC net neutrality decision. Yeah. It's not a clear cut, at least from our European side of, of course. view. And I think in the American society, this debate is not over yet. No, well, this, but the part about the state suing, it's very simple. We have a constitution in the United States, and we have a federal policy when it comes to Internet and telecommunications, mm -hmm. and that goes back to the founding. Even the U.S., part of the reason that it had a success in the Internet was there was a single market from the beginning. There was a common language and a common currency. Yes. And part of the making of the federal government, the federalism American style, is that the central government has supremacy. And we have embedded in our communication laws that... Internet policy is developed from the FCC. And what, why you know that's true is even when the Obama administration imposed uh, the net neutrality rules, they had a very strong policy of preemption. So, you know, Texas could have said, well, we're just not going to follow the FCC. That would be illegal. Okay, so they didn't dream of doing that, but uh, they may have, the state of Texas did sue the Obama administration on other things, but it's very simple. We have a constitution that says the federal government is supreme because of the Communications Act, and this is part of the Communications Act, so California is going to be turned down in court. They are only doing that for symbolic politics. Quick, quick, quick question. Isn't this framework, though, redundant in some aspects? I'll give you one very brief example. Um, the whole idea that platforms, online digital platforms, are not liable for the content they put put online, for example. Mm. This dates back to a regulation which was adopted in 96, what was it, CDA 230? Section 230 of the, of the Telecom Act, that's right. Yeah. yeah. This is one small example, but don't you think this parts of, of the, the American regulatory framework are redundant and outdated? Well, I would definitely say the 1996 Act is outdated. Myself and a group of scholars have been <laughs> wanting to update yeah. that for a long time, um, and, and it hasn't. In fact, uh, the Republicans tried to do it in 2014, and then the whole net neutrality effort mm. just torpedoed it out of the water. But basically, the rules that we have to govern the Internet are from 1996. There's yeah. no doubt about that. But what that also means is every, every different... Um, uh, uh, technology is governed by a different set of rules. Cable has one set of rules, wireless has one, satellites in another. And if you actually embrace the dynamic competition, you should actually have a level playing field in terms of regulation. You know, that everybody should be able to be able to roll out with the same kind of freedom, the same kind of, of you know, rational approach that has, um, you know, that is looking at the same ex post antitrust standard. Um, in fact, this is one thing I will say positive about the GDPR is it's a comprehensive approach on privacy. It doesn't matter who's collecting the data, that it's all going to be, that all data is, is, is um, how would you say, it, it, it doesn't matter that the company that's collecting, you mm -hmm. know, versus a traditional approach would be, well, different companies have, to, because you're this kind of provider, you have one standard, this, you know, so that kind of, it doesn't scale. Um, so definitely... Uh, the, the, that's a, a big issue now is looking at the um, at the communication laws in the United States. Yeah. Albeit, it's it's imperfect, but it has been good enough to get high level of investment. U.S. accounts for about one quarter of the world's telecom investment, which is pretty high figure. It's quite a staggering number, leading on 5G. And what I'd say is, it's U.S. is twice the level of EU per capita. And so the, the Europe can certainly do better. There's, we know we can get around parts of Europe today where we'd, everybody would like more connectivity, and that could certainly be improved. A final question, because we need to wrap up, and I would like to zoom out from this conversation. We talk about EU, the US, and it, it feels as if we're, 
We have different models of governance, there are supposing views, but bearing in mind all the things which are happening in China, in Russia, when we talk about internet governance, we talk about privacy, surveillance, artificial intelligence even, I really wonder, shouldn't the EU and the US do a better job in cooperating when it comes to internet regulation, when it comes to flagship strategy, let's say? Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? Absolutely. I'd say we have never had a more need for each other than we do today. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mm. have three Danish-American children, so I'm very much, um, I, I think the United States and Europe, we don't have any better friends than each other, and we need to, you know, we need to uh, reinvest in our relationship. And the United States depends on a lot, and the, you know, Nokia and Ericsson, they're the companies um, working with Qualcomm and all the American carriers to bring 5G. I mean, why shouldn't that be the case for Europe? And, you know, we can do, look at this with regulation, but for me, at the end of the day, it comes down to hearts and minds that we should be able to say we're not going to work with the company that is facilitating the surveillance state in China. And for all the goodness that people talk about GDPR, it means very little if you've built your network with Huawei equipment with the back door to the Chinese government. So that policy is not going to go too far if the Chinese are going to be able to surveil you or steal your property or whatever because they've got the Huawei equipment on the ground. And as you said, security is worth paying for. That's correct. Uh, thank you so much for this great conversation. Uh, thank you, dear listeners, for, for uh, staying with us. We will be having a short break in August. We'll be back in September. And if you thought that we had a heat wave in Europe in the last couple of weeks, just you wait until political autumn comes back in Brussels in September with the new commission with all the interesting things which are about to um, happen. And we have a very interesting line of speakers lined up for our podcast, so stay tuned. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. 